Produced by PI Media. Abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. In September of 2017, Israel Newtech held Watek Israel, an international conference and exhibition dedicated to water. Guests from far and wide attended the week-long conference and satellite events were held, such as an OECD roundtable event on financing water, an Israel-Africa Water Corporation conference, and CleanVest, a conference where startups met prospective investors, to name but a few. During a speaker's panel with the title From Scarcity to Abundance, New Perceptions about Water Value, Hank Ovink, Sherpa, a representative to the Joint UN and World Bank High-Level Panel on Water, and a special envoy for international water affairs of the government of the Netherlands, said the following. There was a news item the other week on child prostitution in Kenya, and I was listening and it was terrible the whole item parents sending their kids to the city and I was thinking how desperate must you be and then the whole item was on bringing aid and providing medication mm. and service and then in the end like in the last 10 seconds it was why why well the parents had no income why because they had to move why because there was no crops and no cattle why There was intensive periods of droughts for such a long time, year after year, that there was no life. At the beginning is wicked water problems. We don't talk about water unless it hits us like it hit Houston, Bangladesh, Nepal, Florida, the Caribbean, our kingdom as well. Then we start to talk about water. Without water, no food, no energy. With water or without water, migration increases. Hank's one-minute-and-one-second quote tells the story of water on so many levels. In today's episode, we will see how water plays a key role in the global economy, how it can be a source for economic growth, as well as an impediment that might hinder prosperity in well-established economies. There are many complexities to this broader topic. We will introduce you to a variety of ways to understand the issues. In this episode, exploring the entanglements of water and the economy, we will see a strong dividing line between the developed and the developing world. However, there is evidence that today's aid and assistance to developing countries is far more comprehensive than what it used to be, and we are seeing its impact. You won't find a silver bullet answer here, but you might hear some basic principles that have the power to promote a much-needed change in the concepts about water and We humans hold. So buckle up. We are off on a mystery tour through the myriad of elements that drive the global water economy. 
Water is a crucial element for every aspect of our lives. Our first stop, Oded Distel, head of Israel New Tech. But there is also a big, in a way, danger to look at water as too valuable to put economical uh, models on it. Water is a basic human right. It's a slogan that you hear very often, and it is directly related to what uh, Hank just said. When people say water is a basic human right, obviously everybody would agree. And the issue is that many people say water is a basic human right, and the subtext is, and we expect to get it for free. And this is the big risk, the big danger. You are an economist. Yes, I studied the uh, business management, so part of it is the uh, economy, but not only. In your studies, did they ever talk about water? No. How no. come? Because water is, is kind of uh, obvious, and the revolution that uh, we are trying to push forward now, still discussing water as a basic human right, but in a way that it is sustainable. that it is economically wise, that it has a logic business model behind it, is relatively something new. It's often said that the best things in life are free. Well, water shouldn't be one of them. And it makes economic and all kinds of other sense to charge for water usage. Here's Seth Siegel, author of Let There Be Water, Israel's solution for a water-starved world. When people finally pay the real price for water, they act in rational ways that market economies always get people to act. If you're taking a vacation, you're going to look at the cost of flights. You'll look for a cheaper alternative. If you're going to drive somewhere and you have to rent a car, you're going to factor in the cost of gas. And so what happens with, with any resource is that once there's a price to it, you start looking for alternatives. Now, there is no alternative to water, you, people will say, but there is. What is the alternative? Technology. I, I can't drink technology, can no, I? I can use less water by using technology. Instead of flooding a field as a farmer, I can use drip irrigation and use less than half as much water. But if the water is free, why would the farmer spend even five cents on putting in irrigation equipment that saves water? But once you pay a real price for your water, then you say to yourself, oh, well, if I could use irrigation equipment and use half as much water but save... A little more than half, then on an economic basis, it makes all the sense in the world to do that. Or you're a cotton farmer. Well, cotton is among the one or two most water-consumptive crops in the world. You make an economic decision. You say to yourself at that point, if I need to irrigate the field rather than have my crops fed by rain, I'm going to make a choice here as to maybe I shouldn't grow cotton if I have to pay for the price of water. But let's talk about cotton for a second, okay? okay. It, it has a lot of derivatives to it. It's not just the fibers you make of it. You make oil out of it, yep. cottonseed oil. You know, it, it, it drives other parts of the economy. You say forget about cotton, go synthetic, or you say what? No, no, I say grow cotton intelligently. I don't want, I, I, this is not a, an antagonistic comment to cotton. No, God, no, I love cotton. I'm wearing cotton right now. <laughs> in fact, since we're on a podcast, you could tell your listeners right now that we're sitting in a place in mounds of cotton right now. Cotton buds all around us. And cotton balls falling on top of us. I mean, no, I love cotton. No, 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 no. I'm saying grow cotton as intelligently as we can. Water is a key input into the cotton plant. Charge the right price for the water 
and you will find farmers making technological choices. I'm not suggesting they shouldn't grow cotton, although I will say to you that there are places where they shouldn't grow cotton because it just doesn't make sense to grow cotton there. Why is it so important to consume water wisely? Amongst other things, it's the economy, stupid. Regardless of where you are in the world, be it in Europe or South America, in East Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa, paying the real price for the water you consume is a tool that promotes sensible use of this precious substance. The real price is what it takes to pump, produce, purify, and distribute the water. The reason? Here's Dr. Xavier Lefleve. The global community now understands that water is a driver for growth. Dr. Xavier Lefleve heads the work on water at the Environment Directorate of the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. So we're talking about water not simply to please the fishes or to have water to drink, which is already quite a demanding task, but in addition, we now better understand that uh, water is a condition and a driver for growth. All uh, countries, developed and developing countries, should put more effort into managing water properly. To do that, countries will have to invest. Typically, OECD countries are already quite well equipped in terms of networks for water supply, for sanitation, for uh, rainwater collection, for flood protection. But some of these equipments need to be uh, upgraded, renewed. They have to be adapted to a changing climate to meet new uh, health standards. Developing countries face different challenges and typically they have to build new infrastructure to meet maybe some more basic needs. But the point is that both developed and developing countries need more money to invest so that they can deliver on their commitments when it comes to water management. As promised, the dividing line between developed and developing countries. But as you can hear, all countries are facing a challenge of some sort. One of the things that portrays how growth is hindered due to problematic water management practices is shared with us by Paul O'Callaghan, founder and CEO of Bluetech Research. Ironically enough, a lot of people in Africa or in India pay more for a liter of water than you or I do. Like we might be paying a tenth of a cent per liter in the developed world. Very often it can be 10 times or even 100 times that for lesser quality water. How did the world come to that? Well, because the, the infrastructure isn't there and yet the people need water. Somebody steps in and tries to fill that gap. Sometimes it's a tanker pulling up to a village in India where people are buying it, filling gallons from that tank. They don't know how good that water quality is. It's not being tested. If you pay a lot for water for you to survive, this money is not being used in other parts of the economy. Furthermore, think about the time a person needs to invest in order to get the water from a tanker. As we were taught, Time is money. We will examine the intricacies of water security, lack of proper sanitation and poverty in future episodes. Now, going back to the things Paul O'Callaghan said, lacking sufficient infrastructure is not the only factor that drives water prices up. This brings us to the next stop in our ride. Dr. Xavier Lefleve. Water scarcity is a global issue. I can't think of any single country which is not facing uh, episodes of drought or scarcity. Uh, talk to our British colleagues. At the same time, they face floods. Uh, in another part of the country, they will face droughts. Think about Brazil. Brazil is not an OECD member, but it's typically a country where everybody thinks water is abundant. It is in the Amazonian region, 
But in the southern part of the country, uh, cities like Rio and Sao Paulo have faced a very severe crisis. Australia, you name it, in every single country you can find risk of scarcity. So high GDP doesn't necessarily mean good water system or, or abundance of water? Actually, there is a very interesting report that was spearheaded by people from Oxford University uh, called Securing Water, Sustaining Growth, where they show that actually countries which have developed either benefit from simple hydrology, if you like. By simple hydrology, we don't need abundant water. We need regular access to water with no you know, major differences within the year or, or, or in between years. Or they have been able to invest in infrastructure to store water. And you will note that countries which are least developed either face a very difficult hydrology with a lot of uncertainty or viability uh, in, um, in water flows, or they have been unable to invest in storage and reservoirs. So indeed, there is a, a close connection between economic development and what we call water security. The benefit, obviously, of developed countries is that usually they have the financing need, they have the technology, they have the infrastructure, including the institutional infrastructure, they have the know-how to build these reservoirs and to operate water resources management so that they can allocate water where it creates most value for them. So it is a combination of Mother Nature's behavior and our human ability to create mechanisms to complement it. And as Dr. Leflev pointed out, It is not only about physical infrastructure, it is also about institutions within a country that enable better water governance. So we begin to understand a bit more about the interconnection between water and money, but who exactly are the players? I asked Will Sarney, Water Strategy and Technology Advisor, founder of the Water Foundry and author of several books, including Corporate Water Strategies, who takes part in the global business of water. I break it out into a number of categories. Very generally, from my point of view, there are non-governmental organizations or NGOs, mostly providing universal access to safe drinking water, sanitation, and hygiene. Organizations like water.org or Water for People. You also have World Resources Institute, the Nature Conservancy, and others that are more focused on conservation programs and biodiversity. And Before you continue, I just a quick notion. I am asking you about the business of water, the global business of water, and you begin talking with me about NGOs. Yes, that was very deliberate. Why is that? Well, if you look at where things are at these days, it's a very diverse stakeholder group that is involved in the business of water. Business of water, from a multinational perspective or from a uh, public sector perspective, needs NGOs to be part of that solution set. So that's why I led with the NGOs. And then you can look at the public sector, public agencies, whether it's public or privately held water utilities, regardless of the location, it's national, regional governments, transboundary organizations, then also multinationals or nationals that acknowledge that without water they can't run their business or they want to be part of the solution. It's really all industry sectors. You, you really can't do anything without water. 70% of all world businesses rely on water in some way. That's an enormous amount of private sector entities that require water to run their business and grow their business. You know, everyone thinks about food and beverage companies. 
But also think about the semiconductor manufacturing business. The semiconductors require something called ultra-pure water, and they require roughly 12 gallons per standard chip. So for the people who use metrics, we're talking nearly 50 liters for one chip? Yes. Well, we can calculate how many liters are embedded in my smartphone. And that's the right way to think about it. You can't make plastic, you can't make paper, you can't make... An automobile, you can't make anything without water. We need a more expansive view of the importance of water and the value of water in the, both the public and private sector. NGOs, public sector, and private sector, all involved in the business of water. By the way, if you wonder which of the remaining 30% of industries around the world don't use water, well, call centers, your local bank branch, your accountant, your lawyer, etc. But they all use water during the day. So there's no escaping it. Everything uses water. We are dependent on Mother Nature for our water. And Dr. Xavier Leflev points out another element. There are a number of emerging issues which have to be taken into consideration. One is climate change. Climate change is essentially a change in uh, water, precipitation, rainfall, uh, episodes of drought and scarcity. And that really uh, is a challenge, including for developed countries. The point is that, again, they usually have the capacity to anticipate and to invest, but that will come at a cost. Uh, if we are not able to uh, mitigate the impact of climate change, we will have to seriously invest to adjust or adapt to the consequences that it will have on water availability. At this point, just a second, I'm thinking about, you're talking about drought versus Harvey or Katrina or Sandy. The direct cost of a drought is the, the ability to sustain lives. But the direct cost of Harvey, Katrina, Sandy is... in infrastructure. Yeah, from an economic perspective, it's the value of assets at risks which really drive the cost. It's true that in terms of lives and casualties, different countries will be affected differently. A very interesting case from that perspective was a flood in Thailand a few years ago, which actually disrupted a global supply chain of blue chips. Um, so that came at a very high cost for the global economy, although they were relatively few casualties in Thailand. That's a reflection of the consequences of global value chain in a modern economy. A flood in Thailand can actually affect blue chip industry worldwide. That's the butterfly in Southeast Asia that creates the chaos. Yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> new way of illustrating uh, the butterfly effect. Indeed. Look about you. Can you tell where your belongings were manufactured? If during the 1960s The majority of household items a person had were made in factories situated within his own country. It is now obvious to say that is no longer the case. More than five decades down the line, I'm recording my voice on a machine that was made in China. I sit at my desk to write down my thoughts, a desk that I bought at a local branch of a well-known Scandinavian retailer. And the glass on my desk with my freshly brewed tea was made in the USA. Water was used to create them all. And because manufacturing and consumption are now geographically far apart from each other, we can see the workings of the law of unintended consequence in action.
The OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, was founded in 1961. It emerged from the Organization for European Economic Cooperation, the OEEC, hence the founders are mostly European countries. The U.S. and Canada joined them to create a more global organization. Today, Mexico, Chile, Turkey, Israel, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand are additional non-European OECD member states. The organization has 35 countries in total. In comparison, the UN has 193 members. I asked Dr. Xavier Leflev if there is a feeling at the OECD that there is a shared responsibility for countries bordering OECD member states. Uh, it depends how you define responsibility. We want to help. Uh, we want to have an impact. And the way we work is essentially through what we call comparative policy analysis. So we try to understand what are the policy responses. So if you have a robust understanding of the challenges and good knowledge of what are the policy responses that can help address these challenges, we hope that these messages are relevant globally. So we know that they cannot be replicated, but they can be a source of inspiration for other countries. And if they are properly adjusted to local circumstances, to local know-how, they can be a source of inspiration. That's very much how the OECD work. We portray ourselves as a forum where countries can come and meet and discuss and exchange and learn from the good practices that emerge. There are a number of uh, countries who come to see us because they see some value in engaging with us, engaging with our member countries. And it's really uh, what we call uh, a dialogue because the discussion is going both ways. Our member states benefit a lot from sharing ideas uh, and experience from some non-members and vice versa. We hope that some of the recommendations we develop uh, can inspire non-members. At the end of last year, the OECD Council, which is our governing uh, board, if you like, endorsed a recommendation on water, which put together in a very synthetic way most of our policy guidance, most of what we have to say about policies that work uh, when it comes to uh, water management. So we're talking... to uh, Indian, uh, Brazilian, Chinese authorities. We're also talking to a number of smaller countries where we hope uh, that they can consider that recommendation as a source of inspiration. And if they want to adhere, they're most welcome. And if they want additional support to facilitate the implementation of this recommendation, we're, we're happy to help uh, as well. Remember the notion of a dialogue. We will revisit it. Meanwhile, I asked Odette Distel the following question. Does the developed world should do more when it comes to assisting the underdeveloped world when it comes to water and solutions? Yes, but not in a way of uh, just contribution and humanitarian aid, which are all great, important things. But if we want to address the water challenge in a sustainable way, in a very respectable way towards the the developing world, I think it should be done on an economical and on a business ground. Effectively, give people fishing rods, not fish. Dr. Xavier Leflev points out what these metaphoric fishing rods look like. One very interesting development over the last two decades is that globalization, with all its 
limitations has contributed to macroeconomic growth in a number of developing countries, which means that there is domestic money available in these countries. So now even in countries which are less developed, there is some financial capacity. They may be able to um, uh, finance investment in water security using their own domestic financial resources. And that's a huge change because typically that prevents them from being exposed to a foreign exchange risk. Investment needs in developing countries are huge. And whatever the amount of money development organizations can put into the water sector, it will only be a drop in the ocean. So we have a better understanding of what is at stake. We have a better understanding of the the sheer size uh, of the challenge. We better understand that no finance category, if you like, alone uh, will be able to address that. So if... OECD countries, through their development agencies, are serious about helping developing countries invest in uh, improved water management. They can only benefit from that kind of conversation and see how they can engage with other financial players and use development money wisely to cover some of the risks that typically uh, a commercial bank will not be able to cover and through this have a much higher leverage effect that will benefit a larger number of people on the ground. It is likely safe to say that the average person living in a developed country may hold an image in his or her head of the capabilities and abilities of people in developing countries, usually not an extremely positive one. However, says Paul O'Callaghan, ingenuity is a human trait, regardless of location, and solutions are constantly being conceived of and implemented. There is a, an ability, a bit like the same way that people own mobile phones and fintech has evolved. So creative business models in Africa allow people through financial tech and other ways to be able to pay for water through a decentralized so the private sector or those business opportunities that have been created both in sanitation as well as drinking water so the Gates Foundation as an NGO did some really good work on reinventing the toilet but others have as well and we're seeing innovative energy and resource recovery facilities springing up as mini businesses and I think that's very encouraging and very positive and funnily enough you could see some of that then traveling back to the developed world and it can go in the other direction too So the bodies that will bring the gospel of fresh water and good solutions are, again, the NGOs. They have a role to play in helping to support and create the right environment for, for these types of projects and initiatives. But people are incredibly ingenuitive, and there are solutions there. As long as people are creative and open to them, I'd be optimistic that we can meet most of our fresh water needs for human needs and for sanitation Agriculture is probably the biggest and most challenging of, of all of the water problems we face. Um, there's no particularly easy option there. There are a number. But I think encouraging little micro-entrepreneurs um, and mini-businesses to spring up around this is probably a good solution too. What you learn about water is that although it's perceived as a global issue, it's very much a local issue and that every city and town has to figure it out locally by themselves. Things are changing where the needs are the most acute. So you see things happening in places like Australia and California at the leading edge, and then gradually those practices you know, spread out to other places. And if people, average people in the public, if it captures their imagination, then they'll be informed. And I think then they'll be asking their politicians or whoever, you know, oh, wh why can't we do this? And then that'll create the right environment and the will for these type of things to change. Some years ago, I stumbled upon a TED Talk by Dr. Ernesto Ciroli. The title, Want to Help Someone 
shut up and listen. Sounds like a good idea regardless of the situation, but he was talking specifically about developed countries' aid to Africa. In this near indictment against the West, he takes two notions and puts them side by side. Stop acting in a paternalistic manner and stop patronizing, he says. The fact that a person comes from a different culture does not mean he lacks the ability to know what's best for him. I admit, it struck a chord with me. No wonder, then, that when Will Sarney began the following sentence, I could do little more than fully agree with him. We go into emerging markets with a belief that we know what people will embrace from a technology perspective, and we tend to ignore that there are social norms associated with going to a gathering place for water and what that means from a social context. And we think, well, if I put something on this person's home, they'll be happy because it'll be convenient. Well, what you've done essentially is strip out their social interaction. Sitting in a high-tech city, we tend to think of high-tech solutions being that silver bullet in the world of water. It doesn't translate so well. A lot of moving parts in the world of water. I do wish it was simple, but it's not. It's a challenge. Dr. Xavier Leflev. It's very difficult for people who make recommendations, speaking people like me, not to promote a particular model. For instance, think about OECD reports, and I hope I'm not shooting myself in the foot. I'm just trying to be transparent. In a number of our reports, the same holds for UNEP, for the World Bank, for a number of our colleagues. In a number of our reports, we conclude by saying, but to achieve this, we need to build capacity. Building capacity, in the end, somehow acknowledges that we are promoting in that particular country a model which may not be fit for what they are able to achieve at the moment. I hope we would put a little bit more time in trying to understand what they can achieve by the capacities which are already there. Usually they can achieve a lot. So sometimes I think there is a risk that we tend to replicate in a country a model which may actually be inappropriate in that context because that country may not have the capabilities to make it work. I think we could be more humble and pay more attention to the local capabilities which are able to deliver something. They may not be able to deliver what we would like to promote, but if we paid more attention to these local capabilities, maybe we would be able to recommend uh, something which is better aligned uh, with what they can achieve, which would already be a lot. That said, we pay a lot of attention trying to understand and identify good practices and see how they can be a source of inspiration in the countries. In comes education then, as a tool, as a mean that will help you to achieve it. Yeah, education, which again could probably go both ways. I think we can learn more from how countries do it. If you read Eleanor Ostrom, I think there are a couple of pages where she explains how a very sophisticated system in Yemen uh, managed to uh, share water, which is obviously very scarce in Yemen, and still irrigate some crops which were needed for the livelihood of the local population. If we go to Yemen, which is obviously uh, not really an option uh, at the moment, and try to impose new farming practices, new type of infrastructure, new investment and financing model, obviously you will have to build capacities. My point is to say that before we do that, I think we could put a little bit more effort trying to understand what they were able to achieve 
they managed to live in a country which is very arid for thousands of years. I would be unable to survive in Yemen. I don't think our tools and institutions would be able to survive in a Yemen context. So paying more attention to what they were able to achieve, what are the strengths of the institutions, the informal arrangement that they were able to put together and that have survived over uh, centuries, that could be a source of inspiration for us as well. So that's why when you talk about education, fine. But at the OECD, in my work, I promote this concept of a dialogue. I think the word really has a meaning. The point is a dialogic, two discourses, two narratives, and that a dialogue has to go both ways. It has been a long, some might say erratic, journey through the economics of water. It is a very gentle equilibrium. Water scarcity results from both climate change and human behavior, such as polluting water sources. Lack of infrastructure and the inability to bring water to where it is most needed can create poverty. Old traditions, especially in agriculture, can be wasteful. And the fact that the global economy has nearly shrunk distances between places means we are all in it together. Odette Distel At the end of the day, it's a combination of all elements together and creating the right blend and the right influence. And you cannot solve this challenge simply with technology or simply with economy or simply with regulation. It's a combination of all elements together. The situation in the developing world is alarming. The same trends that uh, we see in the developed uh, world, urbanization and growth of population and higher standard of living, definitely exist in the developing world and in many cases in a faster rhythm. And business models, pricing is in the heart of uh, those challenges. Remember what Seth Siegel said? When people finally pay the real price for water, they act in rational ways that market economies always get people to act. We have come full circle, and we are back at the top. Water is precious. Any human being will tell you that. Individuals and NGOs, farmers and service companies, public and private sectors, all should make smarter choices regarding the way in which they use water. But for Odette Distel, change will come once the preciousness of water is reflected in reality, not just in declarations. I think a person in California, in Buenos Aires, in England, in Israel, and in Africa, in Zambia, in Mozambique, in China, in India, each customer should get, at the end of the month, a water bill. And it doesn't matter if we are talking about uh, somebody who lives in the city or a farmer and definitely for uh, an industry. Everybody should get a water bill at the end of the month. Probably for somebody that lives in a rural area somewhere in Africa, it should be a modest water bill. And somebody who is living in uh, Copenhagen, which has the highest uh, water price globally, It's going to be higher. It's interesting that you said Copenhagen because, if I'm not mistaken, they are... They are very efficient. Extremely efficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of a message and education for the global consumer, everybody should understand that water costs money and they should pay for it. Waterline is brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media production. 
Produced by PI Media.